please take your Bible and turn to 1 Timothy chapter 3. So we continue to make our way through this wonderful epistle. It's actually halfway through now. And we have a very short passage tonight, just three verses. Verses 14 to 16 in 1 Timothy 3. But as you will see, Paul packs so much truth into these three verses. It'll probably spill into next week, I'm sure. This really is like a climax of the book in many ways. 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 14 to 16. Let's hear now the word of the Lord. I hope to come to you soon, but I am writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, and taken up in glory. This is the word of our Lord. Let's pray. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, as we draw into your presence again in corporate worship this evening. Lord, we ask that you would teach us the way of your statutes, that you would help us understand your word. Father, lead us in the path of your commandments that we may keep your law with our whole heart. Lord, incline our hearts to your word and not to selfish gain. Turn our eyes from worthless things so that we might fix them on your life-giving word. And behold, your glory in the face of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. We pray this in his precious name. Amen. Amen. Well, I hope you know that there are a few very, very important questions that Christians just can't afford to get wrong. This is why Christians love catechism so much because they teach us a lot of these very important questions. Questions like, I'm sure many of you kids are learning even in your home right now. Like, who made you? What else did God make, right? Why did God make all things? Any of you kids know that answer? Why did God make all things? Oh, we're just all shy this evening. There we go. I know some of you know, for his glory, right? For his glory. You probably don't even know how important that answer is yet. As you grow up, you will see how important that God made everything for his glory, including you. Now, adults, we need to know these answers as well, but also we need to know the answers to even more extensive questions, like what is the gospel? There's not many more important questions than that, which is why we ask that in membership. We need to know what we believe in and what we proclaim. Or how about who is Jesus? It's a massively important question that Jesus even asked his own disciples, who do people say that I am? Or what about this one, which I'm hoping some of you adults know. What is our only hope in life and death? Heidelberg number one. Anybody know it? There we go. That I'm not my own, but belong, body and soul, and life and death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. That is a glorious, glorious truth right there. A truth we depend on, by the way, as Christians every single day, isn't it? Our hope when death confronts us is that Christ is our Savior, which is why we need to know these things. And if we get questions like these wrong, it changes the way that we see God. 
the way that we see salvation, the way we see our Savior, it really changes the way we see the whole Christian life. And if we get these questions wrong, we could end up in that group that Paul is rebuking in chapter 1. Those group of heretics that are spreading lies about who God is. Now, there's one question I didn't mention yet, but I would put it up there with what is the gospel and who is Jesus? It's that important. And sadly, it's one of the questions that I think a lot of Christians get wrong in our day for various reasons. And because they get it wrong, they struggle a lot to follow Christ because of it. And what is that question? Well, it's simply this. What is the church? What is the church? There are a few questions more important than that. I don't know if it's the most important question in the Christian life, but it's top five. Got to be something close to that. And Paul knows how important that question is, which is why at the end of chapter 3, he pauses his exhortations, his commands, to answer that very important question for us in these few verses. Now, if you've been tracking with us through 1 Timothy, you know Paul has been instructing us on how to behave in the household of God. He says that in these very verses. Look at 14 with me again. I hope to come to you soon, speaking to Timothy, to the Ephesian church, but I'm writing these things to you. What things are those? Those are everything that he said in chapters 1 through 3, all those exhortations. I'm writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God. You see what Paul's saying here? He said, all that I've been teaching you, how to deal with false teachers, how to pray together in corporate worship, how men and women ought to behave in corporate worship, how they conduct themselves, how even the church chooses godly leaders, both elders and deacons. We got those qualifications last week. All of that, Paul's saying, is a summary of how Christians should behave. It's a picture of, of what life should look like in God's household. But then Paul suddenly, it seems like when you read these verses, he suddenly just slams on the brakes, stops these exhortations, almost as if he realizes, you know, I need to tell them why they should obey these things. I need to give them a reason for these exhortations. I need to show them the truth, the reality that all these commands are, are born out of. They, they come from this one truth. And so we see verses 14 to 16 here gives us three phrases that describe what the church is and even to a certain extent what the church does. That's what we get in this short passage. Now, the answer to what is the church is far more exhaustive than these verses. This is not a complete picture, but it is such a beautiful, concise, clear picture of what the church is that helps us when we read these commands to know how to obey. So, what is the church? First, it's a household. It's a household, a family we'll see. Second, it's a temple. And third, it is a pillar and buttress of the truth. That's what these verses highlight for us. So first, let's look at verse 15 once again, as Paul describes the church as a household. Verse 15 says, If I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God. Now, Paul uses the word house or household here simply because he's trying to describe the church as not an institution, really. It is in some senses, but as a family. It's his family language. And if we've been paying attention all the way through 1 Timothy, we know this is not unusual. 
Paul has already been using this kind of language with Timothy, hasn't he? In the second verse of the whole book, 1 Timothy 1-2 says to Timothy, my true child in the faith. True child, and it supersedes the biological connections here. You're part of my family, in that Timothy believed under Paul's ministry. And then later when he's pushing Timothy to obey, he says in verse 18 of chapter 1, this charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child. I'm instructing you as a father teaches his son. He's using family language there. And Paul doesn't stop there. He gets even more extensive later on in the book, as we'll see. In chapter 5, verse 1, he says this, Do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him. How? As you would a father. A younger man as brothers. Older women as mothers and younger women as sisters in all purity. In other words, Paul is saying treat each other like family members. Not because you're pretending, but because that's who you really are. Now, Paul didn't make this up and come up with this on the spot. He learned this from the other apostles and from Jesus Christ himself. Peter in 1 Peter 2.5 says, You yourselves, like living stone, are being built up into a spiritual house, another household there. He goes on to say, like a temple, which we'll get to as well in this passage. John in 3 John chapter 1, verse 4 says, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. And those aren't his biological children, by the way. His children in the faith. The people that believed under his ministry is no greater joy than to see them trust the Lord and walk with him. And Jesus was probably the clearest and most explicit on the church being a family. There's that almost comical scene where in Matthew 12, when Jesus is told, hey, your family's outside to come and get you. They're here to take you. And he turns and says, basically, who is my family? Do you remember this? Matthew 12, verse 48. He says, who is my mother? Who are my brothers? And stretching out his hand towards the disciples, he said, here, here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. You see, brothers and sisters, when we say things like that, we don't just say things because we'd like them to be that way. This is who we are in Christ now. This is what we were saved into. If we are looking to Christ in faith, trusting in his finished work, his life, death, and resurrection on our behalf, then we are children of God. We are children of God because we've been born again by the Spirit into God's family. We've been adopted into God's household as children of God. We even bear the family name, don't we? We receive that at baptism, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. We receive that name when we come into the family of God. And we rejoice and look forward to the day when we will receive the most glorious inheritance of all. Because we are co-heirs with Christ, aren't we? Not just co-heirs of a lot of really cool stuff, co-heirs with Christ because we're heirs of God, Romans 8 says. That is our inheritance. This is the beauty of the gospel. We're not just forgiven in Christ. It's not just that we've been cleansed from our sin. No, we've been brought into a new household, a new family. The judge that forgives us and pardons us becomes our father. And welcomes us into the family forever 
And now we have new brothers and sisters and mothers and fathers in Christ that become even closer than some of our most close biological connections. And you know this is true. You've experienced many of these things in the church, haven't you? This, I think, is one of the most beautiful things about the church. And, by the way, one of the hardest things about the church is that we're family. And because we're a family, we can't treat it like it's some kind of club, association, right? Some kind of group where you just kind of come and go as you please. Because, you see, clubs or associations are places where you just gather with people just like you. With the same interests, the same hobbies, even a lot of the same habits. And you just kind of join when you want and leave when you want. If someone rubs me the wrong way one day, who cares? I can just leave the next. I can go find another one. Our world loves those kinds of membership, those kinds of places we can join. That's not what the church is. It's not that kind of association. It's a family. We are stuck together for better or worse. We don't get to pick who's here. God does. And you know God loves to bring people together that would never run together in our normal world. And that does cause a lot of conflict. That does cause a lot of difficulties. But we need to know from the beginning, that means since we are family, we will get the best of each other and the worst, like normal families. But that also means we get the privilege of loving each other earnestly, wholeheartedly like a true family should. We don't just bail on each other. When things get tough, when life gets difficult, we're there to bear one another's burdens, to sacrifice, to serve one another, to provide for one another when we see the need, to really lay down our lives for each other because that's what our Lord did for us, who brought us into the family by doing that. That's what a family is. And really, I was thinking this week, this is what makes days like today so hard, isn't it? As we think about sending off our missionaries. Because we're not just saying goodbye to friends or coworkers. We're saying goodbye to family. Our brothers and sisters in Christ that we have served with, we have been served by, we have sacrificed for, and they have sacrificed for us. And I know if you're anything like me, there's part of your heart that just doesn't want this to happen. But we can send them off joyfully because we know what they're going to do. They're going to bring more brothers and sisters into God's family. They're going to preach the gospel where Christ is not known so that others can be forgiven and adopted into the family. And we will worship with those brothers and sisters for all of eternity because of sending them out. So yes, we can part ways joyfully knowing that Christ will work through them and bring more family together. So first, the church is a household. It's a family. Second, the church is also a temple. Look at verse 15 one more time. Actually, start in the beginning of verse 15. It's towards the middle, but we'll see it in verse 15. If I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God. Now, you're probably thinking, well, wait a minute. You said temple. It doesn't say temple. That says church, right? Church of the living God. But if you know anything about this phrase, especially the living God, this, in a way, is like shorthand for the temple. First of all, the word church in and of itself. It's a sad translation, really, for that word ecclesia because the idea behind it is a gathering. It's an assembly. It's a congregation. But you see, what makes that gathering unique is not just that the members of the church gather with one another. Lots of false religions do that, don't they? 
Lots of associations do that. They spend time. Even government gathers with one another. The unique part about the church's gathering is that when we gather, we don't just commune with one another. We commune with the God who is alive, with the resurrected Savior. When we gather for corporate worship, it's in praise and worship of the God who is life. Not only the God who is alive, but the giver of life. And the one also who has the authority to take it away. And where do we see this happen in the Bible? We see Old Testament. We see that in the tabernacle. We see the temple. In the New Testament, we clearly see that happens in the church. The household of God, which is called what? The temple. The temple all over the place, especially in Ephesians 2. It's where Paul ties all of these glorious pictures together. And remember, Paul wrote Ephesians to Timothy's church. 1 Timothy is kind of like 2 Ephesians, right? He's building on all that he already said. And he already talked to them about a household and a church of the living God. Listen to what he says, Ephesians 2, verse 19. So then you, speaking to the Gentiles, are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints. And listen, members of the household of God. That's not all. Built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. When Paul uses household language, living God language, church language, he's talking about temple. You know, this language would have really stuck out to these Ephesians because these Ephesians live within the shadow of a massive, massive temple. You might have heard in Ephesus, there was this temple to Diana, temple to Artemis, which was this glorious giant temple. These pillars were six stories tall. They had a giant marble ceiling. It was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, and that's where they lived. And so Paul is talking about the church as a temple, and he's really quick to say, look, the church is a temple, but not like that. The church is not like that temple. We don't gather here to help God out, to provide God something that he's missing without us. We don't gather here to make some kind of deal with God where we benefit and God benefits. No, we gather to draw into the presence of the only holy God who doesn't need anything from us so that we can be holy. Drawing into a temple is drawing in knowing, expecting that we will be transformed. Even now as we speak God's word, we hear God's word spoken, we see God meet with us at the Lord's table. What he's doing through all of these things, these means of grace, he's conforming us to the image of his son. He's making us more holy where we love what God loves and hate what God hates. Making us fit for our heavenly home, which guess what? Looks a lot like a temple in Revelation, doesn't it? And there's plenty more to say about that. But brothers and sisters, I hope you meditate and think about this. Because this should change our perspective on how we come into corporate worship. It should change everything we think about what's happening here. This is not a show. It's not like coming into a movie theater. It's not the place we come in primarily to be entertained or to be moved, to come away thinking, wow, that was amazing, but to come away completely unchanged. No, corporate worship is gathering in the presence of the living God. And you know what happens in the Bible when you draw near to God? One of two things, judgment, hardening, 
or sanctification. That's what happens when you draw into the presence of God. We should be leaving different people than when we came in because God is transforming us graciously through the means that he's given us. Is that how you see corporate worship? Drawing near to God, like drawing into the temple to meet with God? I think if we saw this differently, or if we saw it this way truly, I think we'd be a lot less likely to miss corporate worship or be late for corporate worship. And look, I know there's circumstances where you have to be late and have to miss, but there can also be an attitude in yourself that doesn't take corporate worship seriously. That could be the cause of those things. I think we'd be a lot more engaged also when we're here. We wouldn't be playing around on our devices or texting or whatever might distract us here because we're drawing into the very presence of God to be sanctified. Well, brothers and sisters, I pray that we see what a privilege it is to be a temple, to draw into God's presence. And I pray, Lord, help us repent quickly of anything causing us not to take this time seriously. So what is the church? It's a household. It's a temple. It's the church of the living God. And third, it's a pillar and buttress of the truth. We see this at the end of verse 15. We'll pick up right in the middle, 15. The household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. Now, these are architectural terms that may be familiar to a lot of us, but even if we know what they are, we probably don't know them the same way as they were. I mean, we know what a pillar is, right? But in our world, pillars are made out of styrofoam and covered in plaster, and they're just fake because they hide a metal beam inside. That's all we see. These are pillars. They're strong, massive stone pillars, like in that temple or like at the Temple of Solomon that hold up a massive ceiling. And the goal of the pillars is to put something glorious on display, to put that marble ceiling as high as it can possibly be so that the whole world will see its glory. And a bulwark or a buttress is a strong base, a foundation, a support. That's what's going on here. The buttress is what supports those massive stones. Not only the massive pillars, but the massive roof as well. Now I'm sure Paul is again contrasting this temple of Diana. Saying, you think those six-story pillars are glorious? You think that buttress is amazing? You ain't seen nothing yet. The church is the pillar and buttress of something far more glorious. The truth of the living God. We support, we lift up the gospel of Christ. Something that doesn't even compare to anything in this world. Now, if you're reading this verse carefully, you might also be a little bit nervous by what we're saying. Maybe some of your Roman Catholic alarms are going off in your mind. You're thinking, wait a minute, does this mean that if the church is the foundation of the truth, like the truth rests on the church? The truth comes out of the church, like the church is the source of the truth? Is that what Paul's saying here? Well, we might be tempted to believe this. It's not what bulwark and foundation has to do with there, but even more so in Ephesians chapter 2, I already read this verse. What did we learn in Ephesians 2.20? The church was built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, and who? Christ Jesus himself, as the very cornerstone. See, it's not the church that produces the truth. It's Christ, the truth, that produces the church. 
It was born out of his ministry, his work. He brought the church into existence. He ministers to the church. Our role then as the church is to take that truth that was given to us and defend it, protect it, guard it from false teaching. That's what a bulwark does. And then as a pillar does, lift it up, proclaim it for the world to see. Spread the gospel to the ends of the earth, lifting it up so God's glory can be known. I heard a great illustration this week from Chad, reminded me of it, with Mark, a wedding ring. Like, we all know what a wedding ring is, right? And we see the wedding ring, and we see that beautiful diamond. And imagine for a second, that diamond is the gospel. It's the truth he's talking about here. And the prongs there are like the church. Nobody looks at the wedding ring and says, wow, those prongs are glorious. Right? Those amazing prongs. That's not the goal of the prongs. The prongs are to hold it in place to protect the diamond, to set it out on display for everyone to see. That's the church's role here as the pillar and buttress of the truth, to hold that out for the world to see. And that's further confirmed by the next few verses. This short creed or hymn, really this tells us what the church is the buttress and pillar of. Look at verse 16. Great indeed we confess is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh. That's the incarnation. That's the word of God becoming flesh. He is vindicated by the spirit, seen by angels. That's describing his earthly ministry. Filled with the spirit, walking by the spirit, seen by angels, vindicated by the spirit, being rose from the dead. And then he says, proclaimed among the nations. Wait a minute, that's not the work of Christ on earth in the sense that during his incarnation. He rose from the dead, ascended to heaven. That's the work of the church that Christ himself is doing through the church. When the church is being the pillar and buttress of truth, what happens? The gospel, the truth of the living God is being proclaimed in all the nations. To what end? Verse 16 again. That Christ would be believed on in the world. I love what Chad said this morning, even as we talked about praying for our missionaries. We're here, we're worshiping here in Bakersfield because some missionary was sent out to proclaim the gospel to us. We are the fulfillment of this and that we are the ones that believed on Christ in the world because someone was sent to us. So yes, this is talking about us, but it's also talking about the nations yet to be reached as we send off our own missionaries. This is a promise that someone from that people will believe, will trust in Christ and repent. What a glorious truth to realize as we're sending out our own missionaries to the ends of the earth, knowing they will suffer and endure terrible things and really going to do an impossible task. We have a promise that some will believe. And not only that, it ends with this, that Christ will be taken up into glory. Now, in some ways, we've seen that happen already at the Ascension. But I do think if this is speaking the glory after the nations believe, this is the glory at the end of all things. When Christ returns and the church from every tribe, language, people, and tongue gather around the throne of the Lamb who was slain, they are perfected by Christ. They are sanctified. They are glorified by Christ. And what do they do? They turn around and glorify him. They praise him for all of eternity and live for him to the end of their days. Brothers and sisters, that's where this is headed. 
That's our motivation for opening our mouth and proclaiming the gospel. That is why we do what we do at the church. We defend the truth. We proclaim the truth. The gospel of the living God. We're doing that right now as we send out missionaries. But I don't want you to think that we're kind of outsourcing evangelism here. I'm so thankful that we get the privilege of seeing these people go to the ends of the earth and we pray for them, pray that God would bless that. But don't think we're just doing that so that we don't have to do it ourselves. We are called to be the pillar and buttress of truth here as well. That is an extension of us, but we should be opening our mouths to our friends and our family and our neighbors. Why? Because we are the household of God. We are the church of the living God, the temple of God. We are the pillar and buttress of truth in Jesus Christ our Lord. That is our hope. We pray that the Spirit would empower us to do that. Let's pray. Father, we are so thankful that you have reminded us of who we are. Because your son has lived and died and risen from the dead for us, Lord, you have brought us into your family. You are transforming us, and you give us the privilege of being your ambassadors to the ends of the earth. Father, just pray that you would help us to have a passion, a desire for evangelism, that we would not stop at any obstacle that confronts us, but we would trust in you, trust in your provisions, even with the words we say, and trust, Lord, that you will be at work to open up dead hearts to bring them to life, that as your gospel goes out, you promise that it will be believed on in the world so that Christ will be glorified. Lord, help us to trust you in doing that through us and in us by the power of the Spirit, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.